The Inside Learning Podcast is brought to you by the Learnovate Center. Learnovate's research explores the power of learning to unlock human potential. Find out more about Learnovate's research on the science of learning and the future of work at learnovatecenter.org. Welcome to another episode of the Inside Learning Podcast brought to you by the Learnovate Center here in Trinity College, Dublin. I am your host, Aidan McCullen, and we have a great guest for you today. We welcome the author of why we do what we do, understanding our brain to get the best out of ourselves and others. Helena Bosky, welcome to the show. Hello, Aidan. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you. And Helena, as you know, one of the elements of this show, of this podcast, is the science of learning. And we're going to talk about a bit about the neuroscience of learning today. I thought we'd start with something that's dear to your heart the aspect of creativity, which is convergent versus divergent thinking, something we're looking from so many of workers in the workplace today, but we don't often allow the environment to enable them to be divergent thinkers. Let's share what is meant by this. Yes, for decades, uh, businesses have spent a fortune on getting people to be more creative, more divergent in their thinking. And it all boils down to how we adapt to changing circumstances, experiment with new ideas, new approaches, explore different possibilities, question our assumptions, connect ideas, offer novel insights. And none of that is easy. And there is a very good reason uh, why that is the case. And that is because our education systems pretty much across the world have taught us to follow a very linear process where we converge on a correct answer, where we learn that failure is bad, we become frightened of getting it wrong, and we take this fear into our jobs. And for that reason, most ideas don't even get articulated. So what is uh, convergent and divergent thinking? Well, this was a term that was coined way back in the 1950s by psychologists called J.P. Guilford. And he said that convergent thinking really focuses on getting to one solution to a problem. But in the 1960s, a scientist called George Land was working with his colleague, Beth Jarman, and they were working with NASA. And George Land wanted to explore convergent and divergent thinking. And he found that when he worked with small children at the age of five, that children were really good at divergent thinking. Now, divergent thinking is the opposite to convergent thinking. Divergent thinking is when you start uh, with a a problem and then your mind literally goes off on tangents and starts to experiment and explore a range of possibilities, even even though they're very abstract, very general, very vague, The brain connects and connects and connects. And eventually then uh, you can then focus the brain back on working with the wonderful range of ideas that you've generated as, as a result of the divergent thinking. One of the divergent thinking exercises, which is quite well known in business, is to imagine different uses for a paperclip. I often use a shoe because you can come up with some lovely lovely examples and ideas. How many uses can you think of for a shoe or a boot? 
And then you let the brain just literally go mad and and hook to new ideas and let one idea lead to the next, lead to the next. Now, at the age of five, children are really good at this. And this is what George Land found. Five years later, the children had become much worse. Um, From 90% brilliant, they'd become, only 30% of them could now focus on uh, divergent thinking. And by the time they were 15, this figure had dropped, this percentage had dropped again, which is a shame. And then he took the very same experiment and he did this with 280,000 adults with an average age of about 31. And he found that only 2% of adults could now think divergently. The wonderful educator, Ken Robinson, who sadly died about a year and a half ago, said that we get educated out of our creativity. We become mechanical in our thinking. We think of one solution to one problem, and that's what we get rewarded for. And this is the real shame, because if we allow the brain to create, the brain actually loves being able to create. But we need to reward people for the effort of creativity rather than the result of it. So where does this all happen in the brain? Well, the brain, there is a real interplay of different structures within the brain. And creativity is really an all brain process. A lot of people think that creativity only happens on the right side of the brain, but actually all the brain is involved in creativity. The temporal lobes, which uh, sit just above your ears, uh, a lot goes in there to help us um, think about Um, the knowledge that we have stored and to use that, particularly in our memory structures. And the frontal lobes then help us uh, evaluate and decide on alternative solutions. But there is a really important thing we have to do, which is that we need to sometimes switch off the frontal lobes to allow the brain to explore and experiment at random. And this Uh, This means that when we force people into thinking and creating, so we say to them, get in a room and brainstorm and then pick a solution. We're actually asking people to be convergent and divergent at the same time. And we're also putting a lot of pressure on them. And, And a creative brain can't create if there is this pressure on it. So we have to allow the brain to go away and create at will when it's relaxed. And we do most of our creative thinking when we're in the bath or the shower, going for a walk. Um, And then we can then use a brainstorming session or an idea session to uh, evaluate and select the ideas. So the frontal lobes, which, which we need to help us select and evaluate and and critique ideas need to be switched off at certain times. And a really interesting experiment was carried out with wrappers under uh, an fMRI scanner. And they asked the wrappers to improvise. And they found that their frontal lobes were down-regulated when uh, they were engaging in this improvisation. So we really do need to get the brain, you know, to tap into what the brain is able to do best. So the frontal lobes need to be switched off when we're when we're engaging in random creation. And then we bring them back online when it comes to idea selection and evaluation. I certainly did this in the past before I learned more about it is that 
you think it's all about things turning on, but it's actually, as you said, it's down regulation is things switching off the inhibition, where you don't feel, oh, they're going to judge me if I suggest this half baked idea, etc, which is the very essence of innovation as well. People are so afraid of making a mistake in the workplace and being judged for that. And the reason I say that is tied to that is then the curse of expertise, because we become very well established in an organization, we become the go to person for some type of expertise. And therefore, we become wedded to that expertise. And sometimes we don't want to hear information or we're incapable of hearing information that competes with that expertise. And this is something, again, that you talk about in your work. So we love feeling that we have the answers. We love feeling that we, as you've said, that we're the go-to person, that we're the, uh, we're the authority in a certain uh, area. Uh, and we like feeling that sense of competence uh, that we've worked really hard to achieve. The big problem with expertise, though, is that it is a bit of a blessing and a curse. Uh, when we develop an expertise, our, we attach our identity to that expertise. But this actually can narrow our focus and we can then limit ourselves to just that expertise. And Carol Dweck, the Stanford professor, calls this a fixed mindset. We, we say that we're good at one thing, but we're not good at others. And we remain glued to that expertise, often for the rest of our lives, because expertise makes us feel accomplished, efficient. And we like to be able to be that point um, or, you know, that advisory, that uh, play that advisory role and guide people uh, because we have that knowledge stored. Uh, the thing that we need to remember about expertise and the brain loves being able to make things expert in the brain. And when we develop expertise, we it means that we've become very practiced and proficient in a certain skill or, or, or set of knowledge. And when we do that, we don't need to really think about it anymore. It's stored in the brain and the brain loves being able to push a lot of what we do and what we know into our habitual center so that we can call on them with not very much effort. And that frees up our brain to be able to take on new challenges. So a lot of our assumptions that we use to build our expertise on sit below the level of consciousness. And these assumptions remain with us. And all the subsequent decisions we make, and all the patterns we then form in the world around us, uh, we re we use these assumptions to help us respond quickly to the world around us and to be able to, to say very quickly what we're looking at and what we believe to be true. We don't question them. And in fact, what we then do is we seek evidence that reinforces and strengthens these assumptions, even though these assumptions might have passed their sell-by date. And, and you've said this earlier as well, Aidan. And this is called, as we know, confirmation bias. We simply confirm what we already know, because we can't bear to think that the expertise we've built might no longer be relevant. So we stop questioning them and therefore we stop being curious. So it's very hard to be able to accept that what we thought we knew now might be wrong. Because if we've attached our identity to our knowledge and that knowledge is now questionable, it means that you know the world we've created around us also becomes questionable. So it takes quite a strong 
a sense of a determination and resolve to be able to learn and grow. Because what this effectively means is that we need to question ourselves, even when we're doing well. But as Socrates said, the more I know, the more I realize I know nothing. And I think that's what I feel every day that I try and learn something. I realize there's so much more I need to learn. So we need a healthy dose of self-knowledge and humility. Uh, we can't learn anything if we don't accept that we don't know. We need to be comfortable with this state of not knowing, which is really hard for the human brain. And we can't challenge ourselves if we don't know where these wrong assumptions exist. So we've got to sometimes shatter these assumptions, um, listen to people who don't always agree with us, challenge ourselves, even though, as I said, you know, things might be going really well. There might be a better way of doing it that we've not thought about yet. And it's not easy to do this, but it's really good for us. We don't go to the gym once and then expect to be able to run a marathon. You know, learning has to come with some element of discomfort and pain uh, and feeling that we're a little bit out of our depth. Uh, because only then, when we're faced with a sense of uncertainty, and you know, the thing about the human brain, it does everything to avoid uncertainty. It hates feeling that it's out of control, that it doesn't know what it's dealing with. But it's the state of uncertainty that we find ourselves in, which is actually a really critical starting point for learning. So we've got to push ourselves into this feeling of uncertainty in order to be able to get the best out of ourselves as learners. I think that's a, a critical point, Elena, because when you think of even the, the school, like when we go to school, we're, we're rewarded for having the answer not for asking questions, like you say, just to go right back to the start of our conversation, that, that whole idea of divergent thinking, but also asking questions is educated out of us. And then when you think about even you go to higher education, for those of us lucky enough to have done that, the same thing happens again, and the cycle continues. And we're not taught how to manage uncertainty and ambiguity. And that's certainly the business world we exist in today is that world where we don't have all the answers, we need to be humble, we need to be asking questions, etc. But the way the workforce and the workplace is set up is that looks like a weakness to so many. And it's a real conundrum. And we're at this real tipping point, I think, in society towards that world where that's accepted. And then that's the new status quo. Yes. And I think, you know, a lot of businesses talk about it. And now I hear companies talk about growth mindset or learner mindset. And yet they seem to do everything possible to crush risk taking uh, and, you know, and experimentation because one, they have no time, two, they have no money or resources. Uh, and three, they need to get to the right answer very quickly. So, you know, and this is what this is the, you're right, it's a conundrum. And I think if we were to truly think about the world we're in and how to get the best out of our brain, given that uncertainty is not set to be resolved anytime soon, then we need to be setting up different environments where people are able to take risks and take them without feeling the fear of recrimination. And this is what we call, um, you know, safe environments, psychologically safe environments, where people feel able to 
push against the status quo, challenge boundaries that have been set for decades, uh, and try and do things that are a little bit different. But as you said, you know, rewards need to be changed and we need to think, really think about what is it, what is it that we're making visible to people so that they can then do the things we need them to do. But if we truly want people to learn and to learn how to learn within environments that or the world that's uncertain and ambiguous, then we need to set up the corporate landscape very differently. And leaders need to be able to um, allow people uh, to, to try and try and experiment and fail and learn quickly, fix quickly, learn quickly. Tom Peters once said, we have to fail fast, learn fast, fix fast. And if we can get that into our cultures, then people will try as much as they can. And I think we've got to create these environments where people are able to enjoy the effort and the process of learning, not just the result of coming to the right solution. Beautiful. And bring that world on, Helena. And where can people find out more about your work for keynotes, for workshops, etc., for the organizations? Because you do a lot of work with organizations to instill this learning mindset. LinkedIn is probably the best place to find me and uh, and do, do reach out if you'd like to ha- continue this conversation. It's a big topic, a fascinating one. And there's so much more we could be doing to help ourselves learn, create and think more divergently. And a great place to start is Helena's book, Why We Do What We Do, Understanding Our Brain to Get the Best Out of Ourselves and Others. Helena Bosky, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Aidan. Next up on Inside Learning, we have Learning Lead Senior Researcher with the Learnovate Centre, Janet Benson, and Ilsa White, Corporate Learning Researcher with the Learnovate Centre. Very welcome, guys. Thanks a million, Aidan. It's absolutely belting rain outside and we all made it into the studio. So this is absolutely (laughs) worth it. Let's make it worth it for our audience. Absolutely. We all listened to the episode with Helena and I'm going to throw this one out for whoever wants to take this one. She mentioned the decline in creativity despite it being such a desired skill. And I wanted to ask you guys from what you're seeing in your field and your research, how can leaders encourage creativity? I think, Aidan, first, it's, it's, it's all about developing a sense of understanding of the necessity and, and the benefits of creativity. And I think a good place to start is to assess uh, how, how teams and organizations are faring. And, and that would be the, the, the starting points. And I think leaders have a, a large role to play in opening up uh, an open and a, like an authentic discussion in their teams. And that requires them to be brave and humble. And it's really difficult to do that. On top of that as well, I think they need to develop a space that supports their team and their teammates to be creative. And there's there's a hierarchy of doing that here because you cannot ask people to be creative and feel free to fail if if there are repercussions for performance and awards. You just cannot have one without the other. And and maybe just to give an example that that I've experienced and one of the best managers that I've ever had, she she deliberately created um, a space for psychological and a safety which was almost like a, a physical space for us and and she called it our home base um 
it wasn't easy for anyone on the team to to get to that space, and it took a lot of time and discussion and effort uh, before before we became effective. But when when it did, um, there was really an opportunity for us to to bring in new ideas, and we felt comfortable doing so because we knew we would have each other's backs. Um, in terms of supporting us or when times would, would get a little bit uh, difficult. And, you know, it, it could be done without us having to become defensive or feel isolated. And I think as a leader, it's it's about taking that leap of faith to to create a different approach um, and to just be prepared to support and, and and defend that approach as well and evaluate it because sometimes it just it just won't work. But I think it's about taking that that leap of faith and a, a sense of importance that that is approached from a collaborative perspective. I love that. So she created a physical space to almost prime you and remind you on a regular basis. Yeah. So when we would get together, that would be a space to kind of sort of almost ground ourselves and to kind of discuss anything that would be like bothering us or that we had been thinking about. And just she made she made just everything open for discussion, which which was in in a really safe space. It's really nice, Ilsa. I was even thinking actually, you know, the the wellbeing project that you're leading at the moment, Ilsa. And, you know, creating that environment of psychological safety, you know, and an organization of trust is kind of key, isn't it, as a starting point? Yes, it really is. And and it's and it's difficult to do that because it's, it's the organization is sometimes just working against you. You know, you have all your targets, you have all these goals that you need to achieve. So, so taking that time to invest in, in your team and invest in people and to really kind of consider the the importance of the people in the organization is, is a big step. And then, you know, there, there's there's always tensions, there's disagreements and, and to facilitate that process and to dive into that is it's something if that works and if that's done consistently and with the support, it, it can lead to really beautiful things. Beautiful. And Janet, from your work, from your research with corporates, what are you seeing out there to develop creativity and encourage creativity with people? From a Learnivate perspective, and I'm part of the innovation services team, we do an awful lot of that stuff with organizations where we do things like solution workshops where we do, we allow people to really expand on ideas and total blue sky thinking. And we use lots of different techniques to kind of encourage people to be a bit more creative. And again, I think when we come to certain organizations, sometimes they find that a little bit difficult with us because they're kind of going, well, we've never really had the opportunity to do this kind of thing before. But we encourage that kind of, you know, this is a safe environment. There's no such thing as a bad idea. Let's just throw everything at this. And there's no like, be as absolutely crazy as you want to be do you know what I mean and but that's where the good ideas come from and that's where the creativity comes from and obviously as an innovation center that's the kind of stuff we we do ourselves we want to look at the innovative solutions to some of these things and you can't really do that without having that sort of safety environment where you're allowed to be creative I think that's that's the most important thing so apart from the space Janet what tips would you have for leaders or managers you know what it's it's about the person as well I think developing their own their own creativity you know so I think like trying something new can definitely put you in a position of uncertainty and that I think that opens you up to creativity so like for example I started like a painting class about three weeks ago right and I found that like the frustration and not knowing everything straight away, because I'm personally, I'm a very impatient learner. I think that's really helped me with the creative process. And it's very much, I think, about allowing yourself to make mistakes and learn from mistakes, um, which is critical, not just in a creative environment, but as we know, what's really important for learning. So it's more difficult, as we know, in the corporate space, um, as Helena said, particularly in those organizations where employees and learners are afraid to make mistakes for fear of repercussions. But I heard a Brene Brown podcast recently, and she said something along the lines of, you know, you get the behaviors you reward. And I think that's so important in the corporate context. And I think you know, we need to reward ourselves for not just the result of creativity, but for the effort of it. And I think from my own painting, 
it's definitely not going to be a masterpiece, Aidan, but I'll definitely reward myself for taking the class and actually trying something new, you know. Ilsa has a present to look forward to for Christmas. You know what you're getting in your Chris Kindle this year, <laughs> Ilsa? Nobody will be getting that as a gift, I tell you. <laughs> Ilsa's looking now to try and change her Chris Kindle match. <laughs> I think, yeah. Yeah, that's not true. <laughs> Guys, it, it's, it's always a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to spend time with you and listen to your latest research. Janet Benson and Ilsa White from the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College Dublin. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Aidan. Thank you, Aidan. Inside Learning is brought to you by the Learnovate Centre in Trinity College Dublin. Learnovate is funded by Enterprise Ireland and IDA Ireland. Visit learnovatecentre.org to find out more about our research on the science of learning and the future of work.